0: The readings uh, this evening are from Romans chapter 8, 1 Corinthians fifteen, Second epistle of Peter chapter 3 and Revelation 21, beginning with Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 1st Corinthians chapter 15 verses 49 to 58 Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven I tell you this brothers flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable behold I tell you a mystery Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the lord your labor is not in vain second peter chapter 3 verses 10 to 14 but the day of the lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed since all these things are thus to be dissolved what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And finally, Revelation chapter 21. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, your words are entirely trustworthy and entirely true. And Lord, we give you thanks for your word, your wonderful word this evening, that uh, makes known these truths to us afresh, once again this evening Lord God we rejoice with grateful thanks in our salvation won on the cross and Lord because that was a salvation won not with our works not with the the blood of goats or sheep but with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ because that is the salvation that you have won Lord we know that we have a sure and a steadfast hope, a certain future in glory. Lord, we rejoice tonight in that certainty. Lord, we rejoice tonight that uh, we are anchored in the rock of Jesus Christ. Our hope is built on nothing other than Jesus Christ and his righteousness won through his death and his resurrection. And Lord, as your servant Rupert comes and expounds your wonderful word to us tonight, Father, we pray that our hearts will be receptive. We pray that our ears will be open to hear these old truths made fresh once again, that they would resound in our ears. They would resound in our hearts and minds. Father, that we would have a fresh glimpse of the grandeur and the glory of the salvation that was won for us and the grandeur and the glory of the place that awaits for us with you so we rejoice lord in the trustworthiness and the truthfulness of your word and we ask your blessing on rupert and on this time uh, this evening in the name of our savior jesus christ amen
1: Amen. it's our great delight to have as our speaker tonight the Reverend Rupert Bentley Taylor, who is a trustee of the Christian Institute, former minister of a city church in the city of Bath, former president of the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches, and he's recently returned from India. So welcome, Rupert, tonight. We do look forward to what you have to say, and there will be opportunity for questions later.
2: Thank you. I hope that you have uh, an outline that I think was on all the chairs, and uh, that will give you some sense of where we're headed and how far we've got. Recovering heaven, the awesome significance of seeing the new creation clearly. Peter wrote in some of the words we've just read, in keeping with his, that's God's promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of, of righteousness. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones commented that this is undoubtedly the most glorious promise which is to be found in the entire Bible. That's very strong language, isn't it? This is, of course, the thing to which everything in the Bible is ultimately meant to lead. This is the grand object and purpose of salvation. So you can see that this is a very important topic. And the importance of that future is unmistakable in the scriptures. Uh, It's no accident the first two chapters of the Bible are about creation and the last two chapters are about the new creation and everything moves from the one towards the other. Uh, We are waiting Christ's return when he will bring about all that is promised. And in very specific ways Revelation 21 and 22 echo aspects of Genesis 1 and 2. We find there God's people living in perfect fellowship with God and each other, surrounded by a perfect environment. And we find the tree of life, last seen in Genesis 3, reemerges in Revelation. Uh, Everything has moved on. But the glories of the new creation far outstrip the original, but you can see a coherent connection between the beginning and the end of our Bibles. But it's not just uh, that. The promises in the Old Testament of a coming king and a messianic kingdom of peace with God, peace among nations, and even peace among animals and a rule of perfect justice and righteousness that will be both universal and endless. Those promises are repeatedly expressed in the Old Testament. So you find them, for example, or aspects of them in 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 2, Psalm 72, Isaiah 2, 4, 9, 11, 25, Chapter 33, 35, 60, 65, Ezekiel 47, Daniel 2 and 7, Joel 2, Micah 4 and 5, Zechariah 9, and I haven't mentioned all of them. Uh, And there is so many ways in which the images and language of the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22 draw on that great resource of the prophetic words earlier. The very term, a new heaven and new earth, is first found in Isaiah 65 and 66. And also, the whole system of worship of the Lord embodied in the tabernacle and then the temple with the priests and the animal sacrifices by which God dwelt with his Old Testament people and access to God's glory and grace were made possible. That whole order is always pointing forward. It it isn't the destination it's always a signpost to what is yet to come and it finds its true fulfillment in the holy city of revelation and there is no temple in that city because the lord god almighty and the lamb are its temple and at last unhindered fellowship exists eternally between god and man and of course it's very striking that the holy city in revelation 21:16 is to be found expressed as a cube in its shape. And that echoes the only other uh, cube structure in the Old Testament, which is the Holy of Holies. It's a way of telling us that that Holy of Holies described as a cube in 1 Kings 6 is fulfilled in Revelation 21 and in that coming world. Holiness, the sort of holiness associated with the Holy of Holies, will pervade everything, and nothing unclean will ever threaten it. Thus, the biblical notion of salvation is totally bound up with the coming uh, world that God has promised. Salvation through faith in Christ's sacrifice for us, it isn't complete until the day of Christ's return, when we will be raised with dramatically renewed bodies, and when we will be finally transformed into the likeness of Jesus, when we shall see him as he is and be like him. That's what Job foresaw so many centuries ago. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. Isn't that an amazing statement? And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. See, the work of salvation points always forward. And it encompasses this earth. It encompasses the whole physical order. Listen to Paul in Colossians 1.19. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that's in Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross, the the accomplishment of Christ's death spreads beyond the personal salvation of Christians. The power of what he has accomplished extends to everything in heaven or on earth. And as if that were not enough, the commands and mindset of the New Testament constantly point us forward. Listen to Peter. Peter. In his great mercy, he, that's God, has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And then he applies it. Set your hope fully. Uh, He doesn't seem to allow anything else to be the object of your hope than this. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Or listen to Paul in Colossians 3. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And Paul describes his own attitude in this forward-looking sense, Philippians 13. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. In some of his final words, Paul wrote this in 2 Timothy 4.8. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Uh, Paul is almost defining Christians. In fact, he is defining Christians as those who long for his appearing. Hebrews refers to the faith of the patriarchs. Hebrews 11:16 16, that they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And there are so many similar references, as Graham Bynan expresses it. The normal Christian life is spent looking over the horizon to what God will do in the future. So this is the most glorious future that the whole of the Bible brings before us. But my second heading is the most neglected future. Now, in the light of all that I've said already, it should be no surprise to find that believers in past generations put a lot of emphasis on heaven and the glories ahead. It was their great solace in the face of life's struggles and life's brevity. Listen uh, as a kind of sample to Oliver Hayward, who you may not even have heard of, who lived from 1629 to 1702, this is what he wrote. Look upon heaven as a reality and view thy property therein. Survey the delights thereof and see if all these things will not affect thy heart with admiration and transport thee with holy ecstasy beyond thyself. Do thou fix the anchor of thy hope beyond the mortal veil of flesh in the vast and boundless oceans of eternity. O my soul, what a life mightest thou live if heaven were as much in thy thoughts as earth. If the Lord should draw thee all the way through fire, darkness, and death, yet if he lead thee to peace, light, and life at last, he will be a perfect savior and thou an infinite gainer. Heaven will make amends. For all. See, that's a man speaking with passion about heaven. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian of the 18th century, wrote, It becomes us to spend this life only as a journey towards heaven. And yet, our generation of believers is remarkable for our neglect of this immense reality. Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, preaching in 1947, said, There is nothing, perhaps, that is quite so sad and regrettable in the history of the Christian church. That's quite a statement. Especially in the last 50 years or so, as the way in which this ultimate glory of the Christian message has been almost completely forgotten and ignored. Edward Donnelly, writing in 2001, says much the same. We find within Christianity itself less interest in heaven than at almost any time in history. Although there are well over a 100 books in print about angels, the number of books on heaven are far fewer. Donnelly points out that one of the great 20th century reformed works of systematic theology, which uh, you may have on your shelf, Louis Berkhoff, devotes only one of his 784 pages to the subject of heaven. Bruce Milne states, arguably, the last major work on the heavenly life was that of Richard Baxter, The Saint's Everlasting Rest, written in 1650. And you can see what he means by major work by looking at the thickness of it out there in the bookstore. How can this be? How on earth, how on earth did heaven ever go off our radar? Well, here are some reflections on why it is like this. Well, firstly, I think in today's Western society, taking heaven seriously is profoundly Countercultural. Congratulations on being here. In past generations, the notion of heaven and hell were pretty universally accepted, even among people we would probably think didn't have personal faith. But today, a humanistic, evolutionary mindset prevails that regards the whole notion of God and salvation, of heaven and hell, of taking the Bible seriously, as really unworthy of serious consideration. I and mean, those are the ideas that are the preserve of children, the elderly, and the past. So those around us live with no regard for divine revelation and are truly, as a result, without hope and without God, Ephesians 2.12. And materialism and prosperity have confounded the problem. They've made people comfortable in this world and not much exercised in longing for a better one. The most popular of Latin tags has become... Carpe diem. Seize the day. What we have now is all we have. It, it is indeed as if John Lennon rules. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. We don't have to imagine it, John. That is the tragedy of our age. This is the air we breathe. The poison gas that infiltrates the thinking of Christians too. And so we emphasize the Christian life now, joys now, healings now, pleasures now, fellowship now. And the danger is that heaven's a kind of postscript that doesn't get that much attention. So our society will always take us away from heaven. Secondly, there is the insidious influence on thinking about heaven that you can trace back if you're sufficiently learned or read the right books, to the legacy of the Greek philosopher Plato. He lived a long time ago, 428 to 347 BC, as handed on by a sequence of thinkers through the centuries, influenced by him like the Jewish uh, writer Philo of Alexandria uh, at the turn of the millenniums, and then taken up by church fathers such as Oregon in the in the, second, in the beginning of the 3rd century and influencing Aquinas in the 13th century and many others who've never even heard of Plato. Plato taught that the body was a sort of prison from which the soul needed to escape and the spiritual was much to be preferred to the physical. And heaven, under the influence of this strain of thinking, came to be seen as an ethereal place of joys and spiritual delights that represent a liberation from the physical and the earthly. So vague notions about floating on clouds and playing harps and being parts of celestial choirs and going somewhere better in the sky have embedded themselves in popular assumptions about heaven. And not surprisingly, there is a sense that such a heaven could really be rather boring. Mark Twain, the American writer, tells a short story of people arriving in heaven... Uh, Dashing off to collect harps to ascend to the clouds, only to meet droves of others who, after centuries of doing that, have had enough and are trying to find something better to do. Well, you see, this sort of thinking robs us of the groundedness and the delights of heaven on earth and impoverishes our thinking. Then thirdly, there's the rampant individualism of our society. It's always likely to affect our thinking as believers. I mean, we look for personal salvation, uh, for a, we talk of a personal response of faith, we talk about our personal walk with the Lord, and please don't misunderstand me, I do believe in all these, our personal prayer life, our personal relationship with the Lord, uh, and the danger is that we, we think of heaven primarily in personal terms. I'm just going to go and be with the Lord, he and me together, and I don't so readily warm to the Bible's notion of the new heaven and the new earth, which is fantastically corporate. The bride of Christ, the holy city, is full, I quote, of a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. If you are thinking of heaven as a desert island, you got it wrong. It is crammed with people, the scriptures tell us. Fourthly, I think we are stumbled by the legacy of the controversy, heated arguments and divisions over the doctrine of the last things, all the opposing views of the millennium, and different understandings of the prophetic and apocalyptic literature in the Bible. And on top of that, there are the weirdos. Uh, I recall a man, if you'll forgive the term, I recall a man who came to church telling me uh, that the, the date of the coming rapture and within a year or two, the date of the Lord's return, all now long past. And he claimed those despite the emphatic statement of the Lord Jesus, that no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father, Matthew twenty four thirty six, And lots of people have simply backed off with a sense that the book of Revelation is difficult and full of symbols and fantastic images, and who who knows what it means. Uh, In my own church, when I preached on Revelation, I found that no one had preached on the book for 20 years because it was associated with such sharp disagreements. And I fear that's not Uncommon, and if the revelation and the new crea- book of revelation and the new creation are not much preached on, it's no wonder people become vague about it. Fifthly, there is a view that actually we're not really meant to know a great deal about the new creation. It is all mysteries beyond our understanding. Uh, Luther wrote, "Here on earth, we cannot know what the creation of the new world shall be." The joys that are everlasting are beyond the comprehension of any human creature. We on earth have no idea what the life to come will be. Well, if you believe that, you know you haven't got much to say on the topic, have you? Uh, And doesn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians 2:9, "No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him"? So you see, we're really out of our depths. Well, it's perverse. To quote two, 1 Corinthians 2.9 and stop at the end of verse 9. Because the next verse says, but God has revealed it to us by his spirit. So actually, no, we do know something about the world that is to come. Now it is true our knowledge is limited. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13.12 says, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Now think first century mirrors not the one you've got in your bathroom. Uh, first century mirrors were pretty limited in terms of the clarity of the image. So he's saying, uh, we, we, what we see now is a poor reflection, but then, then, that's at the end, in glory we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I am fully known. And in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about extraordinary experience he had. He talks about it very diffidently. He even talks about it in the third third person, uh, about a man caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he adds, he heard inexpressible things, things that a man is not permitted to tell. So clearly, there are things we are not meant to know and we are not told. Uh, Donnelly, who is a pretty sure-footed guide, says, Much about heaven that we might like to know is not revealed in Scripture. Scripture reveals to us all about heaven that we need to know at present, but God our Father understands our natural curiosity, our eagerness to know about the life to come, and he has provided us with a considerable amount of information about it. And if that's true, and I think that's a fairly fair assessment, the fact that there are things we don't know gives all the more significance to the things that are Clearly revealed. They're not revealed by accident. We're meant to notice. We are meant to have something to fix our eyes upon in regard to the new heaven and the new earth. And the sixth thing to say is behind all of this, of course, is Satan's strategy to use whatever means he can to rob us of our sure and certain hope about the future. And of course, Jesus says of the devil, He is a liar and the father of lies. And Satan loves to keep us focused just on this world. And here's the source of the old lie about people being too heavenly-minded to be any earthly use. I mean, the opposite is the truth. The truth is that only if we are heavenly-minded can we be of true earthly use. And Satan also loves that other lie that heaven will be boring. Uh, Revelation 13.6 is an interesting verse that speaks of the beast that he opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. So whenever you hear that thought that Satan is boring, you are hearing the echoes of the voice of the beast. That is, he is planting lies about God's dwelling place in our culture and our hearts. We have to call Satan's bluff We must fix our eyes on what is to come. So let us move on to the most certain future. What will the new creation be like? Johnny Erickson Tarder says, we are wrong in thinking heaven is wispy, thin, and vaporous. It is the earth that is like withering grass, not heaven. And what I want us to do is to walk through Revelation 21 and 22 without pretending to touch on everything there But also, while we're looking in Revelation, to bear in mind some of the hugely important passages in other parts of Scripture too. But I want to say right at the beginning that uh, this passage at the end of our Bibles takes us out of our depth. Uh, As one scholar says, this vision exceeds the limit of our imagination as we anticipate the beauty and joy that will be revealed when the Lord makes his home on earth. So, firstly, chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth, heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I think just that one sentence uh, teaches us three important things. The first, if I can pluck the word from Peter, uh, it speaks of destruction. Well, it doesn't in this verse. It actually speaks of passing away. What it means is that the earth as we've known it will be radically changed. Uh, The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And you look in verse 4 and it says that there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And Peter is very graphic in 2 Peter 3. He says the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. And he applies this to the physical state of the earth as well as to all the marks and consequences of the curse on sin. But Peter's use of the word destruction does not mean, I think, annihilation. As he implies by the comparison he makes in 2 Peter 3, uh, between the flood and the fire. He says the ancient world was destroyed by the flood. He doesn't mean that it was sort of wiped out and no longer was there any earth left. The present world, he uses the same word about being destroyed by fire. It is, as one commentator says, a cleansing or purging judgment rather than a destructive elimination of all that exists. So we go to the second point, which is continuity. Uh, The word new, a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 5, I'm making everything new, doesn't mean a completely new start. It means new in respect of form or quality, as my lexicon says. Something permanently fresh in our world, what is new now, becomes sort of, well, second-hand before very long and quite quaint after a little longer. Uh, But this newness is never going to lose that quality of freshness. The earth is entirely transformed, but it is not totally discarded. It is still the earth. As one scholar says, God is not making all things anew. He is making all things as new. Consider the words of Jesus in Matthew 19, 28. I tell you the truth, it's a very interesting phrase, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now the word renewal is literally Genesis again. At the Genesis again. And Peter says something similar in Acts 3.21. He, that's Christ, must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. And this is the only use of that word restore in the New Testament. Uh, In ancient literature, though, that word was used, and it was only used of repairs and restorations to temples. So it isn't a word used of new beginnings, a new building. It's it's a word used of repair and restoration. And both those words are telling descriptions of continuity uh, in regard to the new heaven and the new earth. The third thing is physicality. The earth, after all, is a place. In the original creation, God judged the physical world to be very good see, Plato was not right to think of the body and the physical as somehow uh, second rate. The new earth has a physical reality just as the present earth does. And this is required by the doctrine of resurrection, is it not? See, Christ's resurrected body is only the first fruits. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And when Christ returns, all believers will be raised with bodies that shall be entirely renewed like his. We will be different, and yet, and yet we will be the same people. We eagerly await, says Paul in Philippians 3, we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So where are all these bodies, these physically raised bodies going to be? Well, physically raised bodies belong in a physical world. The future of heaven is robustly physical, a physical environment for physical beings. Then look secondly at a phrase that you might easily pass over at the end of verse 1, which is, and there was no longer any sea. Now, Quite a lot of commentators simply see this as as the end of all chaos and restlessness and evil, that the the Jews distrusted the sea as an element uh, that was dangerous and threatening. And indeed, if you look earlier in Revelation, Revelation 13, verse 1, the sea is the place from which the beast emerges. But it is striking that this detail about the sea is given such prominence. I mean, this is the kind of classic, ultimate description of the new order and right there in the first verse the absence of the sea I think it is indicative of the earth's liberation of which Paul spoke so eloquently in Romans 8 Uh, for the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice but by the will of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage To decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Do you realize that 71% of the present earth's surface is under the sea? And it seems very probable that was a consequence of the flood. And you can read of the waters from beneath and the waters from above cascading onto the earth in Genesis 7. We live on only 29%, the whole human population lives on 29% of the Earth's surface and then 33% of the 29% is under desert and ice which is pretty inhospitable and not very many of the human race live there. You know, we have never seen a liberated Earth with all its glories and space available to human life and use. No, the earth is going to be set free. There was no longer any sea. Thirdly, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. Now, there are huge uh, claims here. Firstly, this city, this bride, is a coming down out of heaven from God reality. I I put that phrase together because you'll see there he describes it in verse 2 the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, and then you cast your eye on to verse 10, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, and if we were reading the whole of Revelation, we'd have already come across uh, the the holy city in in chapter 3, verse 12, as coming down out of heaven from God. It seems as though whenever John has his attention drawn to this city, it is a coming down out of heaven from God place, because that is its very nature, It is from God. It isn't from man. And there's a stunning fact here that as a result at the end here, heaven and earth become one and the same place. Our ultimate future is not going up to heaven. It's heaven coming down to us. What do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Goodness me, God's going to answer that prayer on earth as it is in heaven. Second feature, now the dwelling or the tabernacle of God is with men and he will live or tabernacle with them. They will be his people, in the original plural, they will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now, when the first tabernacle was uh, uh, built at, at God's instruction, it symbolized the holy presence of God among his people. It indicated that, Leviticus 26, 11. And now everything that the tabernacle indicated and the temple pointed to is gloriously fulfilled here in heaven. God is in the center of heaven with his people. And however wonderful the new created order it is, is, is. It is the presence of God that makes it heaven. You see, here is this amazing assertion. In verse 3, it is made by a loud voice from the throne. It is the voice of God, you see. The dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and God himself will be with them. He couldn't say it more powerfully. It is the fulfillment of the very last words of the whole book of Ezekiel. The last phrase, the last sentence of Ezekiel is this The name of the city from that time on will be the Lord is there. You see, this is the city that Ezekiel foresaw. And we shall not hide from him as Adam did in the garden, but we shall see him face to face. We will be in the most intimate relationship possible with Christ, the bridegroom. We are described collectively as the bride. And everything that marriage on earth currently points to will find its supreme expression and fulfillment in that unbelievably, overwhelmingly beautiful, wonderful relationship. Psalm 16, you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you, to be with God and to know him will be our supreme joy. And it won't be a static relationship. Ephesians 2.6 says that God has raised us up with Christ, amazingly, and seated us with him now in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages... He might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It seems as though we're going to learn more and more because we're going to see more and more of the unfathomable riches of the grace of God. Bruce Milne writes Heaven is home, and home is above all being buried in our Father's heart. But also, we will see that it is with each other. Heaven is not solitary. God will live with them, plural, verse 3. 2 Corinthians 4.14, the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. Us with you in his presence. And Paul anticipates enormous joy over other Christians at the Lord's return. So, 1 Thessalonians 2.19, what is our hope? Our joy or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Revelation 19.9, we read of the wedding feast of the Lamb. And that language of feasting is pronounced in Old Testament prophecy, notably in Isaiah 25. The resurrection appearances of Christ are interesting too. How often he eats. It's really quite striking how he goes out of his way to eat, to demonstrate that he is really there. Um, We find eating a a social habit, a a corporate habit, a a habit that expresses uh, both need and delight. And does not every Lord's Supper anticipate the wedding supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19.9. Now, some have imagined uh, that our joys will be so focused on Christ that we will have minimal interest in each other or the new creation. Now, I don't think that's true. Randy Alcorn, in his book on heaven, very effectively argues uh, that our rejoicing in other believers of all generations and nations and in the wonderful works of God around us will not distract us from God, but will be part of our joy in God. Richard Baxter rather beautifully says, I know that Christ is all in all and that it is the presence of God that makes heaven to be heaven, but yet it much sweetens the thought of that place to me that there are such a multitude of my most dear and precious friends in Christ there. Every friendship will be raised to some unimaginably good level of perfect harmony, what Johnny Erickson calls a, sweetness, a sweet togetherness. Fourthly, Revelation 21, 4 to 6, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Do you know, some people protest that it's all rather negative, heaven. It's described in so many negatives. I cannot understand that way of thinking. These are the most wonderful negatives. And no more death, mourning, crying or pain. Why should you complain about the word no? No. Everything that is spoiled will be gone. If you've ever been exhausted by this world's sorrows, its its tragedies, its brutalities, another suicide bomber, another savage execution, another abused child, another funeral, God one day will write over it all no more. I want that, don't you? I'll go for the negatives. Thank you, Lord. Fifthly, Revelation 21, 9 to 27 is an extended account of God's people as the holy city. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And when he actually sees the bride, the wife of the Lamb, it is the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Firstly, to say the bride is a city. And these two images, these two images are the same corporate reality. Uh, they're seen in slightly different ways, but they're both taken from language that is used in the Old Testament for the whole people of God. And Graham and I think, rightly says, that. so this city isn't the place where we, where we live, it's us. This is a picture of the perfected people of God. But there are various features of the city uh, that are worth pointing out. It is glorious with the glory of God, like a, a jasper. Uh, echoes revelation 47 when when 43 rather the way the one who sat on the throne had the appearance of jasper uh, it is secure it has huge walls 200 feet thick verse 17 guarded by angels that's an image of utter security it is inclusive Its gates face in every direction with the names of the 12 tribes on them and its foundations of the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb on them. What's that telling us? It's telling us that the Old Testament and New Testament people of God will be entirely one. So you'll be able to walk along the road with Abraham and shake hands with Jeremiah. It is immense. The scale is vast. I mean, if you just take the dimensions of this city, it would stretch from London to Athens. Uh, it is holy, as I already said. The, the shape of the cube is, is uh, picking up on the description of the holy of holies. But this holy of holies is not a, a part of the holy city. It, it is the holy city. In other words, the whole place, it, every part of it is holy. There is no such thing in heaven as one bit that is less holy than another. And it is beautiful. It is beautiful. The foundations. Well, Foundations, Uh, have you got beautiful foundations? We don't really care if they're beautiful as long as they're there. Uh, They're invisible, they're merely functional. Why would you want beautiful foundations? Well, you see, this isn't just surface beauty. Our world is into surface beauty. You don't know what's under the surface, do you? All those models in vogue looking amazing in whatever their clothing is, uh, and you don't know what's going on in their hearts. And that's how the whole of this world is. But that world, the beauty, will not just be on the surface. There will, as it were, be diamonds on the soles of our feet, our shoes. We, we have a beauty here that is reaches to the places you wouldn't expect it to be. And it is expressed in terms of these precious stones. And they are the same precious stones as the high priest wore on his breastpiece in Exodus 28 with the names of the tribes engraved on them. Its gates are huge pearls, and its streets are gold. 1 Kings 6.30, we read that the floors of the temple were covered in gold. Did you realize that? So the priests walked on gold whenever they served God. In the holy city, every one of us will walk on gold. And when we understand these, it takes your breath away. And then thirdly, there's a second glorious sequence of negatives. Hallelujah for the negatives. No temple, because amazingly, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There's no sun or moon, for the glory of the Lord gives it light and lamp. No closure of gates, for there is no night. And those two last features suggest that our resurrected bodies will no longer get weary or need sleep. Isn't that a wonderful thought? No barriers of race will survive to divide humanity. Race as an obstacle, as a a matter of prejudice, as a matter of alienation. All the nations, we read, bring their splendor and glory into the holy city. And it's interesting because it implies that the cultural and national distinctives purged of sin will remain part of the God-reflecting diversity of humanity. And there is no impurity either nothing impure and no one impure is there and how emphatic the exclusions are in revelation 21:8 those who are outside and 27 and 22:15 outside and sixthly revelation 22 at the beginning is about the perfect physical and spiritual environment of the new creation. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Uh, This is the river of which Ezekiel spoke in his a description of the great river flowing from the temple in Ezekiel 47 it's what Joel spoke of in Joel 3:18 and Zechariah and Zechariah 14:8 it's what the psalmist in Psalm 46:4 speaks of there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy place where the most high dwells and it's interesting this life-giving river flows where's it come from from the throne of God and of the Lamb and surely this life-giving river is nothing other than the work and presence of the Spirit of God coming from the Father, God the Father, and God the Son, right-giving life to everything and everywhere. And there is the tree of life, which re-emerges after all this time, on each side of the river, bearing fruit each month, just as the fruit trees Ezekiel wrote of in Ezekiel forty-seven twelve, And its leaves heal the nations, of all the collective memories of humiliations and injustices and horrors and disasters and all the awful casualties of the psalm or whatever it is that is born in the mind and the hearts of the nations and the bitternesses that still reside there. It'll all be healed. And there is no curse, verse 3. Now, clearly, the river and tree here have spiritual significance, and yet... Since the promises exist so clearly in Romans 8 of a renewed physical creation and also in the Old Testament prophecies of the messianic kingdom, I take it there will be physical rivers and trees in the new creation and that this description is at least in Revelation is at least indicative of what the new created order will be like. We've never seen an uncursed tree. You've never seen, we've never seen what an apple tree could do. We've never seen what flowers could really be like. We've never seen how crops might grow. And we haven't come on to the animals. No, they were pretty fundamental in Genesis 1 and 2, weren't they? And God goes great lengths to save them in the, from the flood in Genesis 6. And the flood in, in 2 Peter 3 is a sort of preview, according to Peter, of the final day of judgment. Now, Animals don't appear even in the footnotes in Revelation 21 to 22. But they certainly do in the beautiful description of the Messiah's kingdom in Isaiah 11 and 65. The the wolf will live with the lamb. uh, The leopard will lie down with the goat and the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And the little child will lead them. So I, I think there are reasons to think, yes, that the whole created order includes the animals as well as the ground and the trees and everything else. Now, I think it is possible to move beyond what we're told, indeed it's more than possible because people do it, into areas of speculation. And for all that's helpful, for example, about Randy Orcon's book, seems to me he pushes his boat out a bit too far. Uh, He argues for the New Jerusalem as a literal cubed city, just one, if the most important, among other cities scattered around the New Earth. I really don't think that's how the image is used in Revelation 21, 22. He thinks sleep is a good feature of this world and therefore expects it to be in the next. I'm not sure about that. He allows for God resurrecting animals, including your favorite pets, basically on the basis, why not? And he anticipates current works of art, music, and literature purged from deficiencies being present into the age to come. And he says that he expects coffee, baseball, bats, and space exploration. Well, <laughs> I think we've got plenty to chew over in what is revealed without making too many hazardous guesses about what isn't. Right, seventhly, next bit of revelations about the experience of God's people in the new creation. Uh, from the second part of verse three, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. And you find that God is absolutely central to the life of God's people in the new city. Consider the throne of God and of the Lamb there in verse 3. The throne of God is mentioned 41 times in the book of Revelation. It's the pivot around which everything else circulates. And then there's the face of God, verse 4, in which gloriously redeemed human beings will now at last be able to look on and live. And the name of God, verse 4, which will be on, not just on their lips, but on their foreheads. In other words, it will define them, it will identify them, it will name them, it will be their delight to be called after his name. And the light of the Lord God, whose brightness will be endless and all-sufficient and will make all other lights redundant forever. And I don't think that the emphasis on light coming from God is merely symbolic. Do you remember Peter on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration and the others there, Luke 9, 29, what did they see? They saw Jesus' clothes become bright as a flash of lightning. Have you ever seen a flash of lightning? Imagine a sustained flash of lightning, that, the brightness. The, and it's underlined here, no night, no lamp, no sun. Yet again it is underlined. And I think all this speaks of the reality to which Paul refers in 1 Corinthians 15, when God himself is all. In all. Babel is reversed. Never again will there be a city with man exalting himself, but only the holy city where God is exalted. A second feature here is that God's people are absolutely fulfilled. His servants will serve him and they will reign. And the word serve is the word for worship. We will be praising God with uninhibited enthusiasm and any negative experience you've ever had in your whole life on earth about worship will be absolutely nothing like what heaven will be like. You got that? The drums won't be too loud. I'm not even sure there will be drums, but whatever they are, they'll be wonderful and nobody will be arguing about whether we should have them playing or not. All that whole category of hassle about worship will be gone forever. Won't that be fantastic? Revelation 19, after this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, that's you and me, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And also, redeemed humanity will do works of service for God, which are not a separate thing from their worship. Work and worship are not two categories of reality, but bound together. Uh, We worship God. We serve God in our worship and our work. At the beginning, Adam and Eve were to subdue the earth and rule over it uh, in Genesis 1.28. And man was put in the garden to work it and take care of it, Genesis 2.15. And it was all done for God. But suddenly, at the point of the fall, work becomes painful toil in Genesis 3, 17, and we have always worked the wrong side of that verse. We've always been after it. We've never had a day's work which has not been under the curse. But last that day, the curse will be lifted. And we will work without a trace of frustration, without a trace of weariness and dissatisfaction, and nobody will sit in their office thinking, Why doesn't time hurry up, I wanna go home? Donnelly captures this well, how tedious it would be to spend eternity doing nothing. We were designed for work and would be miserable without it. Rest in heaven is not an everlasting slump in a celestial debt chair, but the reinvigoration which comes from fulfilling with our whole beings the purpose for which we were created and redeemed. We will be given remarkable new tasks, thrilling avenues of service, calling for the use of all our gifts and talents, many unsuspected or undeveloped in our present experience. Remember the parable of the, of the talents, Matthew 25, the Lord speaks to those faithful in this age, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. And the work that we will be given will be of a scale and significance we can't truly take in yet. I mean, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, as though we should know, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Well, to be honest, I hadn't really thought about that. Oh, we should. We will judge the world. We will judge angels. The end of verse 5 says here, they will reign forever and ever. Revelation 2, 26, the risen Lord says to him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Revelation 5:10, they will reign on earth. Uh, Tom Wright says, the purpose of this new body will be to rule wisely over God's new earth. There will be work to do, and we shall relish doing it. And finally, the most consequential future. What are the implications of the new creation for us now? Well, I just have to run through a few. Worship. You see, if you look at the passage in Revelation 22, it, the immediate impact on John was verse 8, I, I, John, the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and seen them, what did I do? I fell down to worship. Now, he tries to worship the angel, and the angel heads him back, verse 9, to worship God. But that was the right response. If we have seen what we've seen here properly, uh, we won't be having arguments with each other. We will be on our faces in praise to God. And the Bible sees the prospect as so wonderful That it says that even in the midst of suffering, we should be rejoicing. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Matthew 5 says, you're blessed when people insult you and persecute you. It says, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice now because of that reward ahead Luke 10, 20, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Don't rejoice that you've got a claim or that you're a preacher or that you've done this or you've done that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's the thing to rejoice in. Worship. Secondly, proclaim. You see in verse 10, it says, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Striking contrast to Daniel 8, who's told to seal up the vision, and Daniel 12, to close up and seal the words of the scroll because it was such a long time from its fulfillment. But here there is a whole sense of urgency. Behold, I am coming soon, verse 12 and verse 20. And these things are to be made known to God's people, verse 6. God sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. But it's also... It's not just for the believers. Look in verse 17. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Preach the gospel. Preach the kingdom that is to come, the day of judgment and the day of glory to those who do not yet believe that you would plant in them under God a hunger, a thirst to drink of this living water. See, we better preach this. And if we are preachers, we better be sure we do not keep silent about the new heaven and the new earth, for God will not hold us guiltless if we do. Thirdly, live in the light of it. Verse 11, that him who does right continue to do right. Verse 12, I will give to everyone according to what he's done. Now the term the new creation, which Jewish writers used to refer to the messianic age Isaiah foresaw, and is used by us, and I've used it in that way too, is only found twice in the Bible, in both cases to what is already present in this age. So 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come, and Galatians 6 says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision mean anything. What counts is a new creation. In other words, the new age is not merely something ahead. In Christ, the new age has reached us. Christ's resurrection has brought in the new age, and we who have the Holy Spirit are now New part of the new creation. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven and he's using a present tense. And that's why we should be holy and living now. We are to live now the standards of the world to come. You ought to live holy and godly lives. 1 John 3 talks about purifying yourself in the light of the hope that we shall one day be like him and be faithful in service. Look in verse 13 of of Revelation 14. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest for their labor, listen to this, for their deeds will follow them. Remarkable. In other words, how we live now and serve God now will have bearing on the future. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, which we had read, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, Because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain, is at the end of a great chapter about resurrection. 1 Corinthians 3 is about the the work of the teacher uh, being uh, uh, tested by fire. If what he has built survives, he will receive a reward. And Colossians 3.23 extends something of that principle to a slave and says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. And Jesus refers several times to how we use our money now, having future consequence. Luke 16, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So we must live in the light of that future. Uh, Some people go further. Not only do they think that... uh, God will honor in the new creation those who served him faithfully. Not only do they think that there will be people in heaven because of faithful witness and teaching on earth, but they see somehow a knock-on implication of what we do here in the arts, in the music, in acts of kindness, that somehow we are even contributing now and forming part of what will make the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, Alcorn slightly goes to town on this sort of matter I do find myself somewhat skeptical that I will find a perfected Mona Lisa or a purified Venice or a heavenly cricket match in the new creation. And I think we need to be a bit cautious about how far we press what the Bible does not make explicit. Finally, what we value. You see, if God values things that he displays are important to him, they should matter to us now. Take firstly the physical creation. It matters to God, otherwise God wouldn't be renewing it. So we ought to treat the earth as it is now in its fallen state with respect, and our bodies, which are currently in our fallen mortal state, with respect. Uh, We must therefore abhor abortion and euthanasia. Secondly, the fact that the glory and honor of the nations are brought into the holy city suggests that cultural distinctiveness seems to be part of the richness of human diversity God values. And among other things and other reasons, we should therefore abhor racial and cultural prejudices and rejoice in the multicultural nature of God's people. When I go abroad and meet with other believers, uh, I have found a wonderful kinship in Christ with Christians in other lands, and I find that to be a foretaste of heaven. And thirdly, if the messianic kingdom is marked by perfect justice and righteousness, we should strive for those now because we know that in our own land, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And there's a great deal that the Christian Institute endeavors to do that, that is valuing what matters to God in our present world. Uh, defending those victimized on account of their desire to please God and follow his laws, rather than bow before the massive intolerance of pluralistic liberalism. That's a noble thing to do, and it's proper in the light of the coming kingdom and the ultimate vindication of God. We should not fear the current opinions of men, but fear the judgment of God. Johnny Erickson Tarder speaks of human rebellion like this, setting themselves up in the center of their own moral universe. They kicked God out of the school classrooms and erased his mark from the public square. Profaning his name, they neutered God and tamed him so he would bless their lusts and passions. But in heaven, the record will be put straight. God will vindicate his holy name and dispense his pure and perfect justice. And for a great many people, it will be terrifying. That's right, isn't it? There will come a day of vindication, and it is most sobering and most glorious at one and the same time. Paul says, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and expose the motives of men's heart. And I love the way he finishes, because you think, wow, that sounds really terrifying. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Brothers and sisters, Here, we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Amen.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Rupert. And we just have a few moments. If you would like to ask questions, you can do so in a minute, but just let them formulate in your mind if you have them. There's a question at the back, right at the very back there. You've been speaking about this body being changed. Why do we need the leaves of the tree for healing?
2: The the leaves of the tree, if we look at... uh, I'm sorry, I was cramming in a great deal, as you may have noticed, uh, into a short space of time, relatively speaking. Uh, If you look in chapter 22, verse 2 it says the leaves of the trees are for the healing not of individuals but the healings of the healing of the nations uh, so i don't think it's talking our, our personal bodies will be completely renewed instantly but i think it, it's 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 highlighting something very significant that nations in a sinful world have had all sorts of experiences of Injustices and cruelty and invasion and wickedness and shameful things that they have done and others have done to them. Uh, And uh, I think it's an amazing thought that the glory of the nations are somehow going to be brought in. But the nations will be healed. And all the residual hatreds and prejudices and uh, and sense of injustices and, and shame will be forever gone and healed by the leaves of the tree, it's it's, it's symbolic, but I think it's real, it's a very real issue. Uh, And uh, some nation, well all nations, we're celebrating, I'm not sure that's the right word, but we're remembering the centenary of World War I. And all over our land there are these memorials and the names written up of all those young men who never came back. And you know, there's a, a and then the next generation went off and did it again. Um, You know, we've got scars as a nation. Uh, and humiliations and shame and things we shouldn't have done and all sorts. Uh, and God will heal heal them all. Uh, and, you know, no nation will be bearing the scars of the Holocaust or, you know, accusing fingers. Or if you go to Serbia and you see the kind of national angst that's somehow very deep in the psychology of those people, it'll all be healed. And that's our only hope. I think it's beautiful, but thank you for highlighting it. Um,
1: this is the only one of the autumn lectures. I don't actually don't have a question. I just want to say thank you for that blessing. Thank you for that wonderful, glorious act of worship. Thank you. Thank you for that. You talked
2: about how relationships will be in uh, in heaven. Um, I come across people who are anxious about their marriages. You knew what I was going to say. Do you want to say anything about that? I think I do. I mean, <laughs> I did contemplate saying more in my uh, in my uh, talk, but I, I skipped that. Um, but that's not because it's not significant. I think the point is this, is it is so hard for us to understand that every relationship in heaven will be perfect and infinitely better than any relationship on earth. And that which marriage points to, the permanence of perfect communion, is actually going to be entered into by all of us, single people or married people, the single person as much as the married, will enter into the glories of that which marriage is a parable of, that which on earth marriage is a parable of, which is that perfect union with our, with our Lord Jesus. Um, so every relationship will be stunningly wonderful. Now, what about me and my wife? Well, that relationship will be stunning. It'll be better than it ever was on earth. Every relationship will be better than any relationship of marriage on earth. So we're not going to lose the particle of the blessedness of our marriages in the sense of a special rela- That relationship will become so much more special. Uh, But we will all have brilliantly special relationships with everybody. Uh, And uh, above all, we will have this, I mean, I think this is where we have to say we are out of our depth, beyond our comprehension, to fully understand the richness of what it will mean to be with Christ. Uh, And, you know, Paul uh, Paul says that to be with Christ is better by far. Uh, And in heaven, it will be just marvelous. We, we will miss nothing. We really won't. There will be absolutely no regrets. We will not be looking back and thinking, well, I wish I could have that now.
1: You've talked a lot about, about heaven. Actually, you're very good. I've really enjoyed what you've had to say. But you talked a lot there about, about heaven. And uh, but, uh, in, your, in your talk, you really were talking about us being on the earth. You know, and, and the Bible says the meek shall inherit the earth. Have the Jehovah's Witnesses got it right? No. I think they have, as far as that goes. Absolutely not. No, okay. no. Well, as far as the 144,000 go, yes.
2: <laughs> we will all inherit the earth. I mean, currently, we talk, don't we, of a believer going to heaven when they die. The New Testament language is that actually we go to be with the Lord. Uh, and Jesus speaks to the dying thief, you'll be with me today in paradise. Uh, and and Paul says it's better by far, uh, and the Scriptures, Revelation speaks of uh, speaks of the spirits of sorry Hebrew speaks of the spirits of, of righteous men made perfect. But the spirits that they, they don't those who've gone before us are gloriously with the Lord, but they do not yet have the resurrection body. In fact, they're anticipating and looking forward to that day when they will fully enter into the glory of the salvation that we share together. So um, it is only when the Lord returns and heaven comes to earth that salvation will finally be fully entered into. When our bodies are raised and we together. Uh, the, it says that those who've died, uh, that those, the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are left will be taken with them to meet the Lord in the air as the Lord comes with his holy ones. Uh, and uh, it seems to me that is the Lord coming to complete everything and to bring in, uh, bring the, the this is the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So it's, going to be on the earth. it's going to be on the earth, but it is, it is heaven because in this unbelievable way, God is going to make his dwelling amongst us. Um, so that, uh, I mean, I don't think this is a helpful phrase. It, uh, Randy Alcon talks about the intermediate heaven by which he means the heaven you go to when you die currently. Now, I I don't like the phrase intermediate because it it is where God has eternally lived from eternity past. So I, I don't think there's much intermediate about that which is eternally. I mean, our minds can't take it in. Eternally, it is where God dwells and his glory is fully manifest. And it is eternal, so I don't think it's intermediate. However, he's quite right. What he's trying to say is that in this remarkable way. I mean, it's prefaced though, of course, by Christ being in heaven with a resurrected body now. Uh, so already there's the token of the physical reality of human beings made perfect. Uh, and when he comes back, uh, this glory of God will, be, will, will come down with all the godly uh, in, and, and with the Lord at the center. Uh, on this earth. And what that quite would be like, uh, well, we're given all these indications, but we're obviously out of our depth. Sorry, I don't know if that answers the question. <laughs> Sorry, what, do, what are you saying about the Jehovah's Witnesses? What do they say? They say that we're going to be on the
0: earth. But so
1: they do say that
0: there's
2: that, Yeah, no. Yeah, okay. So the, the, the JWs... Um, are heretics, but like all heresies, um, th- th- they have taken part of the truth and mingled it with significant and serious errors. So it would be wrong to say that everything that, J- not everything that Muslims believe is wrong. I mean, they believe there's a God. That's a pretty good start. But I mean, it doesn't actually land you, I mean, tragically, the God they believe in is, is, is solitary. And so there is no ultimate communion and there is no ultimate love there. I mean, that's the tragedy of Islam. Sorry, I wasn't talking about Islam, was I? The JWs. So, so the fact that they don't be put off by the fact if the JWs say it's going to be on earth, that therefore it must be false. Now, we don't believe it because the JW said. We believe it because the Bible says it. Okay.
1: Just A statement which may be helpful because I've been accosted by Jehovah's Witnesses fairly recently, uh, and they seem to be out in force, but one thing they do not believe is that God will be in the midst at the end of them they do not believe god's going to be somewhere else but he's not going to be in the midst of the people if that is of any help
2: and that by definition means it's not heaven sorry there's a question over here there'll be no more pain and no more sorrow does that mean our minds will be wiped of the memories of those that we love who
1: have not received christ as savior family friends
2: yes I didn't um, address. Uh, Some people have written very helpfully on that. Um, I think it's uh, what I know for certain, I can say for certain, which is that there will be no element of um, regret or distress. Hell will not spoil heaven, if you follow me. Hell has no hold over heaven whatsoever. And I think what we find difficult to grasp is I think that in heaven, we will understand the complete, total, and beautiful perfectness of God's judgments. Now, that sounds a strange thing to say. But I think, you see, that that there is a psalm which, which, which is just calling on the whole earth to rejoice and all the trees to clap their hands. And why? Well, because he comes to judge the world. That the judgments of God, seen with the eyes that will be perfected, will be altogether righteous and themselves a cause of thanksgiving. Now, I I, I just think that we must not let ourselves be robbed in the least from the sense that heaven will be completely wonderful. Some people, uh, Jonathan Edwards talks a bit about this, thinks that we will be aware of our sinfulness from the past in order that we may delight not, it's not in the memory of the sinfulness, but in the measure of God's mercies to us, which we will never be able to sort of get used to, but we'll always be thrilled beyond measure. Uh, and if he's right, I'm very happy he's right. Okay, so I'm, uh, I think we have to say there are things we can't um, you know, speak on with absolute clarity yet, except I do think heaven will be without any alloy of anything that would spoil it whatsoever including the reality of hell. I suppose
0: two questions then.
2: Um, following on from
0: that, um, we, there, are there le- different levels of reward for believers? And will that matter? And second question, what struck you? You've preached right through Revelation before. What struck you this time? Perhaps anew new. Okay.
2: Okay. Um, Yes, rewards. Um, I think uh, that, um, actually, Tom Wright, who I'm not altogether a fan of in some areas, is actually rather good on rewards. Um, rewards, um, we mustn't think, it seems to me that everything in heaven will be completely, wonderfully glorious for all of us. So there will not be any sense that we will have in our hearts the capacity to resent somebody else's significance or importance or whatever. I mean, the scriptures do indicate different levels of responsibility, which are actually described in terms of a reward. So, those who have been faithful over the man who was faithful with two talents and the man who's faithful in five talents, the two talent man, I think, is told that he'll be given responsibility over two cities and the others given responsibility over five cities. There's a distinction between the two, but they're both described as good and faithful servants. And the reward is not some sort of, ooh. Unrelated, we're we're in a world where we get unrelated rewards. I mean, they're nothing to do with what we've done. But but here is reward that flows out of our service that we will be given extra responsibilities and we will be entirely fulfilled in doing those responsibilities. So the man with two cities will be absolutely thrilled with with the responsibility he has over two cities and he will be so happy for the man with five cities or ten cities or whatever it is. Sorry, I haven't got it in front of me. Um, He will be absolutely thrilled. So there's been no sense envy is all part of that which will be swept away. So that in. So far as God makes distinctions you remember the famous uh, uh, when um, uh, Whitfield was, was asked whether he thought John Wesley would be in heaven and his wonderful answer which was to the effect that uh, yes he was asked would he see John Wesley in heaven he said well he wasn't so sure because he felt that um, he would be at the edge of the crowd and John would be so near the center that the view of him would be difficult for him to acquire uh, but I think, I think there is abs- that, that spirit of absolutely delighting in what anybody else's blessings are uh, will be permeating the whole of heaven. Sorry, the second question. Oh, it's what did I learn? Um, I, I found it a blessing to be forced to, well, have a, has a job, a pleasant job, to, to just immerse my heart in heaven. And I actually found when I was, Writing this and and getting into it, my own heart was was moved with a sense of wonder uh, and and joy, and and I found that I I found that a blessing to my own soul. So thank you for giving me uh, that task.
1: I think we must call a halt there. Just want to thank you, thank Rupert for coming tonight and giving that tremendous encouragement to us all. I'm sure he's been a blessing. To the staff of the Christian Institute, I think a blessing to all of us here tonight. So thank you so much.